0: All right, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. That's where we will be this morning. We are going to read through the whole chapter, so let's go ahead and get started. It says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it to Ebenezer, or from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, "The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for His hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God." So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, "What shall we do with the ark? Excuse me. What shall we do with the of the ark of the God of Israel? Excuse me." Let me read that again. What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, with, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us or, and our people. For they were, there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Amen. So a couple of heavy chapters here the last couple of weeks. Chapter 4, we talked about the... Uh, the, or we read about and talked about the devastation of the judgment of God, and we're going to continue to talk about that so I can set up what's happening here today. Um, when we look at chapter 4, we see God's judgment on Eli and his household, and this was something that was prophesied beforehand, so in chapter 4 we see it come to fruition. When you back up and you read chapters 2 and 3, there are certain parts within those chapters where God Uh, sent a prophet to speak to Eli and to let him know this is what's going to happen. I'm going to pass judgment on you and your sons for your disobedience to me. And so once that is proclaimed to Eli, we see it come to fruition in chapter four. And what we see, well, we see that the nation of Israel goes to war with the Philistines. And when they are at war with the Philistines, there's two battles that the Bible talks about. The first battle, 4,000 of the Israelites fall. And once 4,000 of them fall, they, they have an idea. First they have a question and then an idea. The question is, why did we lose today? Our God is with us. God always gives us the victory. Why did we lose? They said, oh, we have an idea. Let's, it's because we didn't bring the Ark of the Covenant with us on the battlefield. So they go and get the Ark of the Covenant along with The Ark of the Covenant come Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests that were that were there with the Ark. And so they think, oh, now we have the Ark of the Covenant. We are going to win this battle. So they go back into battle with the Philistines. Instead of losing 4000 men, this time they lose 30,000 men. And on that day, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, both died there. And that was part of the prophecy that was given to Eli. So they lost 34,000 men on the field of battle. You can easily say they were defeated. And then two of their priests were killed. And then the worst thing that could happen to the nation of God, and I'll explain why this is the worst thing, but the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. So then someone escapes from the battle. They run towards Shiloh, and Eli is there waiting to hear about the results of the battle. So you have this person running back towards Shiloh, and they see Eli. Eli is nervous about everything, because he knows about the prophecies. And the Bible talks about him being nervous about the Ark of the Covenant. And the, and, and the messenger comes back, and he tells Eli, we lost, your sons are dead, and the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. The Bible tells us that he falls back in his chair. He was a very heavy man, falls back in his chair, breaks his neck, and he dies as well. That's the high priest of the nation. Then, after that, chapter 4 ends with telling us about a story concerning one of Eli's daughter in laws. During this battle, she goes into labor, she has a child, and while she's in labor, She dies, but before she dies, she names her son, and she names him Ichabod. And the name, or the meaning of the name is, the glory has departed from Israel. And the reason why she named him that was, yes, because of all the tragedy, but mainly because the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And all hope was lost. At least it seemed that way. Now, when we look at chapter 4, one of the difficult things to deal with in that chapter is the thought that innocent people suffered because of the sins of Eli and his sons. But the fact is, we have to calibrate our minds, we have to get on the same page of Scripture, and we have to remember no one is innocent. Let's start there. Can I get an amen? No one is innocent, not even us. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. So no one is completely innocent. The fact that, that none of them had perished beforehand was an act of mercy from God. The same is true for us today. The fact that we know God is a complete act of mercy from God. Because we all know our past, we all know who we were, and we know who we would be if we did not have Christ. So that's the one thing that we see here is that, yes, it's difficult to see, but, you know, sin, our own sin, affects other people. And that's what we see happening here. It's just this collateral damage that the nation of Israel is having to deal with because of the sin of Eli And his sons. After chapter 4. After reading all that. It would seem like the nation of Israel is done. Kind of reminds us of our own lives. I guarantee as I look out in the crowd. Every single one of you have been to the point where you're like. My life is done. I've messed up. Or maybe someone close to you has messed up so much, you're just like, I just don't see a future for myself. I don't see a future for my family. And yet God remains faithful. Israel's looking at their future, and it's like the Ark of the Covenant is is captured. There's no future for us. But then God shows himself faithful in chapter 5. See, God is still seated on his throne. When we read in chapter four, all the devastation that happens, it seems like things are out of control. It seems like no one is in charge. It seems like God has been defeated. He's been captured. But all along in chapter five, we come to find out he is still on his throne. And that will always be true. It was true back then. It's true now, and it will be true tomorrow and forevermore. That's why he is the eternal king of glory. And for us, as we read chapter 5, it's important for us to see the Lord's sovereign hand in the situation. It's also important for us to see that he judged rightly, and it's also important for us to understand that his purpose for all of it are two things, His glory and the good of His people. Those things never change with God. When we read things like this in the Bible, or if it's happening to us in our own personal life, it's happening for His glory and the good of His people. If you are His people, then thanks be to God. No matter what is happening to you, we have that hope that we belong to God. So then therefore nothing that ever happens to us is a waste. God is using it for his glory and our good. So in our text today I want to look at this sovereign power of the Lord. And I want us to see how God is simply God is greater. I don't even have to compare him to anything else because it's it's just important to know that God is greater. There's nothing in our life that's greater than he. And when we look at this story and we see the sovereign power of the Lord, we see his, his power, his majesty, um, his essence, whatever you want, whatever way you want to describe it, we see it through three main things. You know, I love the innocence of, of children, especially my own at times. They often ask about God and, and they ask about things pertaining to God. Uh, especially my daughters, they're real curious right now as to the nature of God and who He is. So they'll ask questions about, like, you know, how big is God? Is God bigger than that building? Is God bigger than that? Is God stronger than you? Is God stronger than Him? You know, just, you know, questions like that. And, you know, I, I find it, you know, I, I find it humbling to try to Describe to them how strong God is, how big God is. There's really no words in the human language to adequately describe God the way we should. We try our best. But honestly, the questions of a seven year old and eight year old sometimes are more difficult than the tough theological questions that I get from other people. But in describing the things of God, or not the things of God, but describing God and describing his sovereign power, it's it's an awesome thing to see God working and moving in your life. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we definitely see God working and we see him moving. In fact, we see the enormity of God's power displayed against the enemies of the Israelites in several different ways. First of all, we see his knowledge. Second of all, we see his presence. And third of all, we see his power. And we see these things displayed completely here in First Samuel, Samuel chapter 5. So I want to talk about these three things so that we can see the sovereign power of the Lord better. So that we can realize the sovereign, the sovereign power of the Lord More, And we can see how God is greater than anything we will ever face. So the first thing is his omniscience or his all-knowing attribute. We see the power of his knowledge in that God not only knew that the Ark of the Covenant was going to be taken from Israel. We already know he knew about that because of the prophecies he had given to Samuel. So this was not a surprise. It's not like God was dwelling within the Ark of the Covenant, and Israel was attacked, and God did not know what to do. Our God was not in control. He already foreknew. Why? Because he had determined it to be so. See, the Ark of the Covenant was considered to be the dwelling place of God here on earth. That's why it was the worst thing that could have happened to the nation of Israel. That's why when Eli heard that the Ark of the Covenant was captured, he fell back. That's why the daughter-in-law, when she found out that the Ark of the Covenant was captured, she said, oh no, our hope is lost. The the, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. See, because in their eyes, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured, since it was the dwelling place of God here on earth, what that, that meant to them, God was captured. God was captured. Think about that. The God that saved them from Pharaoh, led the nation out, brought them to this place. They saw him do mighty miracles. No one could contain the power of God. Now the Ark of the Covenant was in the hand of the Philistines, their greatest enemy. And their first thought is, all hope is lost because God is captured. See, but God had determined the Ark To be captured. Why? Well, first of all, in order to bring about his promised judgment on the nation of Israel for their sin, but also to show his captors who was really in charge. To show everyone that he was the eternal king of glory. See, God not only determined the ark's capture, but he also determined its release. Because this is a simple fact. He, first of all, he cannot be contained by anything. But more specifically, he cannot be contained by man. He cannot be contained in objects. He cannot be contained in anything. And this was a lesson that Israel was going to learn here. Now, as I think about that, there is something else that sounds very familiar. And it should sound very familiar to you as well. See, when God sent his son, Jesus, into the world, his followers were lost when his son was captured. Remember that? We get into the Gospels, Jesus is captured, even though Jesus tells them beforehand, I will be captured. I will be crucified. I will rise again. There we go. We see the same omniscient power of God. telling it before it was going to happen. But when he's he's captured, what happens to all the disciples? Boom, they scatter. They don't know what to do. Their life is falling apart. But we know that God had determined beforehand that his son would be captured. In fact, that was the reason why he sent his son. He sent his son to die. So, As a disciple, you're looking at your Messiah, he's captured, you're thinking, oh no, they have captured God. Here it is all over again. But God had a purpose in it. Just as he had determined that his son would be captured, he had also determined that he would be released. Why? Because the power of the grave could not contain him. See, there is this connection of what we're seeing here in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and then what we see in the Gospels. But it's not only about his omniscience, it's also about his omnipresence. He, God is everywhere and he shows that here in chapter 5 as well. See, once the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, it was customary for them to take that relic, that's what they saw it as, they saw it as a relic, to take that relic and take it to their Uh, synagogue or not synagogue, but place of worship, temple, and place that in the presence of their God to show it as a trophy, to give it to their God to say, look, we have, you have given us power to defeat the Israelites today. Dagon, here's your trophy. And that's exactly what they do. They grab the Ark of the Covenant, take it back to their temple, put it in the room with Dagon and no telling what other um, idol they had in there. And they thought they had captured God too. They celebrated. And they thought they had the victory forever. They thought they had finally crushed the Israelites. Because this was the first time that they got their hands on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, although the Ark of the Covenant was considered the dwelling place of God, this is what we have to understand about God and his omnipresence. He was not restricted to the dimensions of the Ark. He was not restricted to that. You know, we know of a genie and we understand that a genie is a fictional character. But one thing about that makes it so interesting about a genie and a, a genie's life is that it's all it's an all powerful being, but restricted to a very, very small space. And sometimes that's our image of God. And more ways than one. Sometimes we abuse prayer and we treat God like a genie. We want to rub it, make our three wishes, and then move on. We know God is greater than that. But we also know that God is not contained in any building, any place of worship. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. In fact, Scripture says that God says about himself, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? There is nothing that we can build that will contain God. That was something that the Israelites would find out soon enough. See, the Lord's presence was not restricted to the ark. And when we look at our lives, his presence is not restricted only to us. Are only to a certain place. We must understand that God is everywhere, and that's why He can handle anything. I like to bake. Yeah, I said it, real men bake. I like to bake. I mainly like to bake because I like the end product. I like to eat what I bake. And I also like to barbecue, and they're they're pretty similar. But Most of the time when I'm barbecuing, I have no problem sitting around because I'm relaxing. I'm sitting around the pit watching everything as I cook. Don't want to make sure, you know, I don't want it to come out dry or anything like that. But when I'm baking, it's usually in the middle of doing other things. And so I put whatever it is I'm baking. Let's just say biscuits. I bake some biscuits and I put them in the oven. And then I take off and go do something. I forget about the biscuits a lot of times. I'm a busybody, so I'm just moving around doing different things. And what reminds me that I'm making biscuits is the smell that comes after it's been, they've been in there too long. So what I've learned to do when I bake is I always use a timer. Always. To remind me, oh, I have something in the oven. Because if that timer doesn't go off, I won't come back to it. That reminds me about how we are not like God. We are not omnipresent like God. We get distracted, we go somewhere else, we leave something that we think is going to be okay then all of a sudden everything goes wrong. I can't be in the kids room and in front of the oven at the same time. My kids life, I, I, I can't be at school with them and be at home or be at the office at the same time. I'm restricted to this body. I can only be at one place at one time. God is the only one who can be everywhere. Even the enemy, even the devil cannot be everywhere. That belongs to God alone. So, see, next time you are baking something, let's say you're baking biscuits, and you burn the biscuits, I want you to stop and I want you to pray and I want you to say, Thank you, Lord, for never burning the biscuits in my life. Right? Because he never leaves you. Anything that happens to you is never out of his control. He is always present. And look, this is true for the Son of God. Again, I want to take us back to the Gospels. What we see in First Samuel chapter 5, we see in the Gospels. We see that when the Son of Man came, they nailed him to the cross. And then they put his body in the grave, in the tomb. And what did they expect? They expected it to stay there. Why? Because he was dead. So they closed the tomb. They expected the body to stay there. But we know that the body did not stay. See, after they ended his life, they thought Christianity, they thought his movement was completely over. But instead of staying dead, the Son of God rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. And then what did he do? He sent his spirit into his believers. And they were better off without him being there because now he was in them. And God is everywhere. And you know why that's important? Because sometimes we feel like we're alone. We feel like no one loves us, no one's thinking about us. We feel deserted, and that's never true if you have Christ. The problem that you have is that you have taken your eyes off of God. But his presence has not left you, and it never will. I go back to his covenant promise. He will never forsake us, and he will never leave us. He is with us all the days of our lives. And what's awesome about it is that he can be with you, and he can be with me, and he can be with those biscuits, and everything's going to be okay. The third thing that we see here in chapter 5 is his power. His all sovereign power, his omnipotence. We see that here in chapter five. See, once the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it. Uh, they brought it to the temple and they thought, yeah, we won. We defeated God. In fact, we capture God. Our God is greater than your God. Dagon rules. Yeah, we're on the winning team. And, and they, everything was great But until the next morning. And look at what scripture says in the next morning. Uh, verse three says, when they went into their temple the next morning, their idol, Dagon, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Okay, no problem. It's just a coincidence, right? That's what their priest probably said. Hey, nothing to see here. It's just a coincidence. It, no, no big deal. I was probably walking around the temple and I accidentally hit Dagon. He fell down. No problem. We'll just pick him up, put him in his spot again, okay? And that's exactly... What they did. Now, what this symbolized was a posture of submission and worship, right? But it could have been a coincidence, okay? God fixed that the very next verse. The next day after that, when they rose early on the next morning, it says, Behold, God had fallen, or Dagon had fallen face downward again. This was a posture of submission and worship. He was face downward again on the ground. But to remove any sort of thought of coincidence or anything like that, the head of Dagon and his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. And only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. What's interesting about this, and this is not something I want to spend a lot of time on, but I, I, I thought it was interesting, as I was reading about this situation when a very popular Philistine was captured by David, Goliath. After after he was killed by David, his heads and his hands were cut off as well. Pretty interesting, isn't it? But the fact is, is what God was doing here was he was showing the Philistines that he was all-powerful. Dagon hadn't defeated him They hadn't captured him. What he did to their idol, he basically just showed them how powerful he was. He removed his hands and his head. I don't know about you, but that's that's pretty much defeat there, isn't it? Not much you can do without your head and your hands. Not much a statue can do anyway to the living God. But he showed them who it was that was in their midst. And then it, it could have stopped there. But God continued because they were hard headed, They thought whatever they thought. But God began to display his judgment on the Philistines. So what did they do? After they got a little scared there, they, they, they kind of got a little spooked. They passed it, the Ark of the Covenant, from one city to the other. These were like considered their strongholds. These were major cities. And what they were trying to pass it along to one another to see if, they could, if one of those cities, one of those temples could contain this God of the Ark of the Covenant. They were trying to rather restrain him, restrain his power. Problem is everywhere they sent the Ark, there was trouble. And scripture says that the hand of God was heavy upon them wherever the ark went. And finally, they said, send the ark of the covenant of Israel away. Verse 11, let it return to its own place that it may not kill us or our people. But then look at verse 12. As we see the the, the hand of the Lord so heavy against the Philistines, Look at what they do. They cried out to God for mercy. And scripture says that their cry went up to heaven. What did they do? They saw that, the, that, that God, the true living God, was greater than their idol. And they prayed to God. The same language, similar language is used of the Egyptians when they were under Slavery and, and, and under persecution all those years, it says that their cries went up to heaven. God heard their prayers. And in the same way here, the hand of the Lord was so heavy against them, they forsook their God and they prayed to the God of Israel for mercy. It also, this also reminds me of the Gospels as well. See, when they captured Jesus, those who captured him thought the same thing as the Philistines. They captured him and they thought, yes, we finally have him. This is our greatest enemy. He's destroying our religion. At least he's trying to. He's swaying the people. They're going to make him king. We have defeated him and they celebrated and they thought, they, they thought that they had gotten rid of him. But the Gospels tell us that upon him dying on the cross, there were certain things that happened. Number one, the curtain of the temple tore in two or was torn in two. The earth became dark and it shook violently. Men who had been known as dead came out of their graves. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave and the rest is history or rather his story. That all-powerful attribute of God never leaves him. It's true in the Old Testament here in 1st Samuel chapter 5, and it's also true in the Gospels, and it's true in your life today. God is all-powerful. See, that all happened to declare the eternal king of glory had not lost. He tore Dagon to pieces to let them know, I didn't lose. I let myself be captured. When we look at his son, we have to think the same thing. Remember when the guards came to capture him or to take him away? They said, where is this Jesus? He says, here am I. Boom, everybody fell down. That's like Dagon, falling to his flat on, you know, fat Falling flat on his face, and his arm, his hands, and his uh, head being removed. Jesus showed him the power. Like boom, at his words, everybody fell back. I can only wonder what the guards were thinking when they got back to their feet. But he's like, no, here I am. Here, you can capture me. You can take me. Do what you will with me. This is God's will, and it's going to happen. This all happened. So that the mercy of God could be bestowed upon us, by the way. See, God had not lost when Jesus was captured. In fact, he was captured in order to defeat our greatest enemy. That's the enemy of death. Through Jesus dying, of him being captured and dying, he defeated death for us. So that in him, we who believe might have the righteousness of God. He died so that we could live. See, I I can't help but see the imagery of the cross here in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's just a great reminder for me that God is sovereign and he always will be. He is the eternal king of glory. He is the only one who is all-knowing. He is always present and he is all-powerful because he is God Almighty. So as we look at this, What should we do? What should we think? Because this is very important for us to know this about God and know this about his nature. Well, one thing we can always have because we worship a God like this is that we can always have hope. In Christ, there is always hope. No Christ, no hope. But if you are a Christian today, no matter how bad anything gets, you have hope because you belong to the eternal king of glory. The Bible says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, for so many, this world is a scary place. Maybe you're nervous about this world right now. Maybe you're scared. The future seems even scarier. And the reason why is that it's very easy to see why this world is lost. We see all these things happening before us. And the older we get, the less we understand why these things, not that we don't understand why these things aren't happening, but We just see how depraved society is getting. And we sit there and we shake our heads and we're like, how long is this going to go on? How bad is it going to get? We start to think about not only ourselves, we start to think about those who will live life beyond us, our kids, our grandkids and beyond. Maybe it's not even in the future. Maybe there's something that you're going through right now. That's making you lose faith in the sovereignty of God. We lose focus so quickly. That's why faith is so important. That's why doctrine is so important. Because our, our hearts are deceitful because Our hearts just go based on the motion and if things are going well, then then things are great. But when things start not going well and they get out of our control, we think and we forget, oh, we serve a God who is sovereign. He knows my situation. He is with me. And by the way, he is all powerful. There is nothing greater than he. We forget that. So, But when we look at this world, we see that, we, we see that it's lost. We see that society, that they do what ought not be done. We look around and we see that people applaud the murder of babies. We see that happening and we scratch our heads like, how can people come to that conclusion that, that it's okay to do that? But even further than that, they try to change what God intended to be the family unit. And it's accepted. No, In fact, no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to say anything because why? They know things will happen to them if they say anything. If they say, no, God designed the family to be a father, a mother, and children. Not a mother and mother, not a father and father. So there's all these things that is happening in this world, and we see it, but even, it even goes beyond that. They destroy the image of marriage. As we continue on and on again, we're starting to see people not wanting to get married. And this is not only society, but this is even within the church. And if we see people that don't want to get married, we also see people that don't want, don't want to stay married. They watch the world and the world just it doesn't matter with the world. The world gets divorced for any reason. In Texas, you don't need a reason. You can just say, hey, we grew apart. And Christians are following suit. It's like, oh, it's getting tough. Oh, we're just growing apart. Oh, it's okay. Just let's just separate. This is better. But what does God's word say? Society seeks to silence the word of God. Just keep it down. You can speak about anything you want. You can be as vulgar as you want. But don't mention the gospel. Just don't do it. Because that gets people really, really angry. Sin is celebrated. Holiness is mocked. The Word of God is not revered. And the world says there is no God. For the Christian, and maybe for some, they look at the world and they say, Where's my God? Is he captured? Is the devil winning? These are things that may pop into our heads, and that's why a sermon like this is very important for us to know that, no, the devil is not winning. This is not out of God's control. God is not surprised by this. God is still on his throne. He is still with us. First Samuel chapter 5 is a reminder to us that our God is sovereign. See, the world is in the, in the condition that it is because of sin and the judgments of God. Yeah, there is collateral damage, just like the sins of Eli and, and, and his sons. There was collateral damage with the nation of Israel. See, there's collateral damage with us. We suffer because of the sins of the world. And oh, by the way, we are guilty too. Right? Because we can't just point the finger that way and say, it's the world's fault. I shouldn't be suffering because I'm a good Christian. No, we're guilty too as well. And everything that we get from God, all the blessings, that's just mercy and grace. But God is judging the world even now And because of that, and because of sin, we suffer because we live in this world. But no matter what, we must never lose hope. This is what Ephesians chapter 6 ends with. I read you uh, Ephesians 6, 12, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the very next verse. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having having done all, to stand firm. Fight your battle. Fight your battle of holiness. Fight that good fight. Whatever it is that is attacking you, whatever it is that is devastating your life, Do not retreat. Fight the good fight. Stand firm, knowing you belong to the eternal King of glory. As I said before, he knows about your situation. He has not left you. He is present in you. And he is able. He is able to bring about his will in your life. What we have to learn is, is we have to learn to trust him. We have to learn to trust him, and we have to learn to live by faith, not by sight. I'm going to end with Romans 14, 11. This is the proclamation about God at the very end. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess that I am God. That's the promise we have from the Lord. Notice he's not just talking about his people. Just like God showed himself to the Philistines and they cried out to him. They said, never mind. Dagon is not more powerful than you. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Our God is greater. Let us pray.